0: Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Replacement Level podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Elliot Kalb. Elliot is the Senior Editorial Director for MLB Network. He's also the author of numerous sports books as well. You can give him a follow on Twitter at MrStats50. Elliot, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, Elliot, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place.
1: Well... It's been a part of my life since I was seven, eight years old. I grew up for five years in Southern California and it was a big thrill as an adult to work with Vin Scully. But it was a such a part of my life. The greatest present I've ever received was a transistor radio for my seventh birthday, and I would go to sleep with Vin Scully in my ear and he literally taught me the game of baseball. So it is ingrained I've learned other sports, I've played other sports, I've worked professionally and and written books about other sports, but baseball is the one sport I say that I miss in the off season. Baseball is the sport that gets in your blood, and it it will always be. So I don't know what first drew me to baseball, but I I know that whatever it was, I can't uh, get away from it now.
0: Were you a collector as a kid, or are you still now?
1: You know, Not really. Uh, not like some people. I would collect maybe ticket stubs or hang on to things, but I was never an autograph collector or, or, you know, the one collectible. I understand a lot of people collecting things. I never understood the appeal of bobbleheads. And I think this goes back to when I had, uh, when my boys were smaller and I took them to a Yankee Stadium and it was Bernie Williams bobblehead day. And uh, they were so young, even though I tried to tell them they weren't, uh, they broke them on the way home and I was so upset. But I, I see people with 50, 100, 200 bobbleheads and, uh, or on the set of TV shows, and I just don't understand the appeal. But I understand the appeal. I just have never been
0: a big autograph or memorabilia guy. Before we get into your current responsibilities at MLB Network and some of the fun things that you do there, tell me about working for Vin Scully. What's your favorite Vin Scully story?
1: I began working with him in 1987. And I'm, you know, a kid just a few years out of the University of Massachusetts, and it's a big thrill. Uh, And this is the age before cell phones, and very few people carried cameras with them. And we would work the Saturday game of the week. So on Friday night, Vin would fly in from wherever the Dodgers were. We would fly to the site of the Saturday game of the week. We'd have a production meeting at the ballpark on Friday night. And on Saturday after the game, we would go back to the airport. We would fly home. Those of us the NBC, Vin would fly to wherever the Dodgers were. There was a game at Wrigley Field on a Saturday afternoon, and Vin had a tight connection. Uh, he had to join the Dodgers who were in Montreal. Not that many flights to Montreal. And the game, of course, went into extra innings or went long. And on the way, on the expressway to the airport following the game, the limo broke down, pulled over on the side of the highway. The limo driver had to call for help. None of us had cell phones, obviously. Vin, so upset and worried because it takes a strong person and a committed person to do as many games as Vin Scully did, he actually still dressed, still in his coat and tie, took out uh, went out of the luggage to the side of the road and put his thumb up and started hitchhiking. And I had a camera with me, and I'm laughing with the producer. I should take a picture of this. I took several pictures, and we sent it to the New York Post. Vin wasn't upset. It got into the papers on Monday. If you were were on the Dan Ryan Expressway in Chicago on the way to O'Hare, and you saw Vin Scully, what you thought was Vin Scully uh, with his thumb out hitchhiking, it was, and uh, it just points to the level of commitment that Vinny had. And I would make pilgrimages the last couple of years. I would always schedule a game at Dodger Stadium so I could come up and and visit and and say hello. And one time I said, Vin, I've got to ask you, with all of the uh, new technology over the years, what has been the greatest technological advancement to make your job easier in your long and storied career? And he thought about it, and he goes, the yellow highlighter... And when you think about it, he took the yellow highlighter in how many newspaper articles or, or, or prints or articles, and I thought that was a very funny and, again, typical Vin Scully story.
0: I love those pictures of him hitchhiking. I love the idea of those. You should send those to the Hall of Fame.
1: I can send them to you. <laughs> it's, yes, it, uh, I love it, too. I love it.
0: Tell me about your job at MLB Network and what some of your primary responsibilities are there.
1: You know, I'm like Don Zimmer because I feel like I've never worked a day in my life. I, I come in with, you know, during the season, I'm in by 6 a.m. to start a research packet. And and on certain days like this week, I'm in even earlier for the World Baseball Classic games that are being done live from Asia. But whether it's writing writing a research packet for games that are going to happen and, and putting some stories and some stats and some storylines or doing research for the different shows. I work on High Heat with Christopher Russo. Sometimes I work on Intentional Talk with uh, Kevin Millar and Chris Rose. Or no matter what show I work, or the Showcase Games where I go back on the road with Bob Costas. It's writing. It's producing. It's talking baseball. It's what I do. I would do this for no money. So I love. Actually, you know, I I'm very lucky that I uh, I work in, in something that I just absolutely love to do.
0: How do your responsibilities differ in season and during the off season?
1: Well, in season, we're responsible for, you know, on the baseball side of things, because I'm also overseeing the NHL network research. But on baseball in season, we have 17 or more hours a day of live programming. We start with MLB Central and we go to quick pitch. And that ends when, you know, we don't start quick pitch until the last game on the West Coast is over. So it's a very long day. And. Not that I'm here 17 hours a day, but you have to have information that lives that long and you have to have people that you trust. And during the season, you have to be able to work on deadline and you have to be able to produce a lot of... And you always have to have ideas. You always have to generate ideas. You always have to check things. In the off-season, we still have some of our shows, but we obviously don't have the same pace and we don't have as many hours and we don't have as many weekend hours. And it gives us a chance to do... Certain specialty shows, countdown shows, it gives me a chance to write some shelf obits, things that I hope that are not used for many, many years. But there's a lot of different responsibilities, but it just changes in the off-season uh, slightly. There's not that same pace and not that same urgency. How many
0: people are on your research team at MOB Network?
1: We have about 15 or 16 people, probably close to half of them staff positions, And they're among the best baseball minds in the country. And I'm very fortunate uh, to have them.
0: Let's talk about some of your off-season responsibilities. Part of that are some of the lists that MLB Network comes up. They do a top 10 right now, which are the top 10 players at each position, and then the top 100 overall. Tell me a little bit about how each list is compiled. Well,
1: the uh, top 100... uh, we've done this show for a number of years and I've always been involved in it. And uh, this year we, it's not like the top 10 at each position where they have a formula and they, and we call it the shredder but it's my research team coming up with Brian Kenny with a formula where you plug the numbers in and it will come out with with a list and then that list could be argued by Brian and Bill James and Bill Ripken or Harold or whoever and it makes for entertaining television shows but the problem with with a formula is that you have to tell yourself that in your mind, you know that Gary Sanchez is one of the top catchers, but he didn't play enough games to make the uh, qualifying list, and he won't show up in the uh, top 10 catchers. You know, Kyle Schwarber is not going to show up on the top 10 list at any position, but in my top 100 right now, it's called top 100 right now, I'm going to have A.J. Pollock who only played 12 games last year. I'm going to have Michael Brantley or Kyle Schwarber or Gary Sanchez or Trey Turner, so it's, it's uh, not by a uh, formula, but in, in this year for the top 100, I told my researchers, and we all voted and put together a top 100 list, and then we aggregated it and, and refined it. But uh, you know, I told them to, to actually right now, if you're going to start right now, who the top 100 players are. And, and so to me, it, it, it's not like you can have top 10 at each position because in my eyes, a relief pitcher who throws 60 or 65 or 70 innings cannot be as valuable as a guy who throws 200 or 190 innings. So for instance, on my list, well, on the top 100, there are 23 starting pitchers and only seven relievers. And I think when I made my list, I didn't even have seven relievers.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I've always been curious how you guys handle relievers on the top 100. There's been many years where I've thought, they've been overplaced and overrated. This year, it seems about right. I think that we're learning more and more about relievers. And I think that a true number one, even one of the top 30 pitchers in baseball, I don't think even the best relievers can get the same value as those guys. But when you start getting into that 30 to 60 range, I do think that relievers belong there just as much.
1: We saw with Andrew Miller, we see with the tournament style of the World Baseball Classic, if you put relievers in high leverage situations, it, it makes a lot of sense and their value is gonna be you know, tenfold from from guys that are always gonna get a clean inning. You know, if you only bring in a guy with no runners on base with a two run lead and three outs to go, they're gonna you know, there's I can get you fifty guys that are gonna save eighty five percent of those games. But what what those Andrew Millers can do, it's very special.
0: Let's talk about the top 100 list itself. And I think the basic difference between the top 100 and the top 10s right now is that the top 10 are formula driven and the top 100 is a little more subjective. So let's talk about some of the top 100 players. Giancarlo Stanton comes in at number 22. He's coming off a down year, realistically. He is outward by just about everyone around him, below and above him. So Giancarlo Stanton at 22, do you think he's being overrated there and that you're still ranking him upon the massive amount of potential, but not the ability that we've seen on the field?
1: He just turned 27, so you would think he's in the prime of his career. And I know he's always had these injuries, but the, you know he had the, the left groin strain that caused him some time in the DL last year. But even in a down year, he, he, he hit 20 homers for the seventh straight season. I think this is a guy that one, one of these years is going to put it all together for 155 games. He's one of the top talents in baseball, and I think it's very fair to put him there because you can get very trapped if you just go on his stats from last year or in his games played the last couple of years. And and I think that's perfect because he's a guy with top 10 talent, but the numbers in the past probably place him in the 40 to 50 range. So I think where he is is, is uh, quite fair.
0: A guy who's tough to know what to do with this year is Bryce Harper in 2015. He had a historically great year in 2016. He did not what to do with Bryce Harper. You have him in at number nine. Do you think that's too high or too low or just right? Uh,
1: again, I think it's right. I think he's he's a top five talent, a top three talent. Uh, I, I I recognize that there are guys who have produced, on uh, especially last year, where they have to be higher than him. But I, I definitely put him in the top 10. I probably put him in the top seven myself. And I think that You know, again, one of these years, it's all going to come together for Washington, like it did for Harper two years ago. And I think Washington has a much better lineup this year. You know, with the addition of Adam Eaton, I think it's going to be a better team. And I think that this is a, you know, the expectations for the Cubs are so great that it wouldn't surprise me if they slipped down a little. And it would not surprise me if Washington had the kind of year that the Cubs had last year. It really wouldn't.
0: You mentioned that the list is sort of compiled by or aggregated by several lists. You and your team all put together a list, and then you take the aggregate of all of those lists. Who on your list did you have the highest that was ranked lowest on the actual list, on your personal list?
1: You know, here's where, and I, I did. I, I said this on TV to Greg Amster and Bill Ripken, because they argued that Adam Jones was not on the list, not in the top 100. And when I looked at my list, I had him on on the list. I had him on my top 100. Not high, in the in the 80s, I think. But I had Adam Jones on the list, but then I listened to my guys, my the, the young researchers, and Adam Jones's stats have gone down. They went down last year and they went down the year before that and they went down the year before. He's he's really a shell of what he was 4 years ago. And when he was like, you know, a top MVP candidate and and I just don't think that um Adam Jones is is one of those players that uh, you know, I had him on my list, but he didn't make the top 100. So there there I differed a little from uh, some of my guys. And I, I think I had Mark Trumbo higher.
0: You had Trumbo in the top 100?
1: I did, and he didn't make the top 100 either. But uh, I don't know if I looked at it close enough, because it, 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 it's questionable. And again, as someone who's written books, ranking players in different sports, and, and you're always going to get... Uh, I, I joke about this. I would joke with Harold Reynolds. You always want 20 guys in the top 10. You want 50 guys in the top 25 there's always guys that are people are going to say you left this guy out and there's not much difference between if i told you uh, mark trumbo is 103rd or if he's 98 if he's 98 he's in the top 100 otherwise you have this big outcry but really the the difference isn't that much and i if i look at the guys who were 199 98 on the list you know you darvish wilson ramos the, these are guys who have things to prove who have um abilities that are far greater than their numbers that come, you know, because of injuries. And when healthy, they are certainly deserving of, of top 100 status.
0: How are the metrics that StatCast and pitch effects are producing influencing the type of research you and your team are doing?
1: Ross, we live in a data-driven society. And, you know, it is helping us Immeasurably, it's helping the game. There are fewer missed calls. There are fewer, you know. There's a greater ability to to dissect players, to identify players, to identify great players, and we have a lot of tools at our disposal. And Statcast is is adding to it and illuminating light on things that, you know, we would never have known or never have even guessed you know who hits the ball the hardest who has the highest exit velocity coming off the bat who has the greatest spin rate who takes the biggest leads off first base all of these things that were not able to be measured just a few years ago just in uh, the inception of the network in 2009 it has changed so much just as society has and this data-driven society you lose things you lose the human element of of arguments let's say because outside of ball strikes, you don't see that bang-bang play at first base with the umpire coming out and kicking dirt. But you don't see it in tennis, where, again, they have such great replay angles that there's just you don't see those, those personality-driven McEnroe and Connors-type arguments. So do you lose something? Yes. But what you gain is, is so much more in, in terms of accuracy.
0: You mentioned that you do work for NHL Network as well. Does the NHL have a similar tracking system like StatCast or like PitchFX?
1: It's a few years away from being the analytics-driven sport that baseball is. Baseball with all its numbers and with the pitcher-catcher confrontations, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 times a game, it's much more uh, able. But there are plenty of analytics and plenty of numbers in the hockey side. It's just a few years behind.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing, it's amazing where everything's headed. It's still, you know, you watch a lot of game broadcasts and I watch a ton of baseball. And when you see batters and the during the second pitch of every bat, they show the stats and it's still for the most part in local games, it's average home runs in RBI. And I do wonder when we're going to get beyond that as well.
1: But that's not bad. It's not bad. I, because I'm very inclusive. I hate to talk a language of look at me, I know more than you, or I'm smarter than you. I want to bring more people in. I want to bring young people in. I want to uh, bring non-sports fans into the tent. And if you bring them in with identifiable things that they can understand or that they've been taught by their parents, or it's not bad. If you can use advanced metrics to show something that you cannot show with traditional stats, I'm all for it. But I'm not in favor of scrapping the traditional stats and having a game look totally different than it did 10, 20, 30 years ago. Does that make any sense?
0: I do think it makes sense. I think it makes sense because you want baseball to be more inclusive. One of the things that Harold Reynolds has talked about is that he said he said that he thinks that sabermetrics is racist. And that's not true, obviously, because it's just math and data. I think the point that he's trying to make is that it's pushing some people away, and you don't want that to happen at all.
1: See, I love Harold, and I... I am in so much agreement with him over the years that it's it's scary. And I find what he has to say, I learn much more from him than he can ever learn from me. And I say this about most of these former players. So when Derek Jeter was in the final years of his uh, playing days and he was being bashed by the sabermetricians for his defense because his range was not as great. And Harold would tell me, you don't think Der- Derek has adjusted and after all these years knows where to where to play and it's he has an answer for everything and usually watching the games with him harold's right more than not he's right more than not and there is a growing tendency to have ivy league young white people in terms of management and taking general manager positions. So I wouldn't call anything racist. I would just, this is a trend. It, there might have, used to be a trend of, of of cronyism or scouts or former players as g- general managers right, off, right out of the uh, playing careers. I think it's a trend. If somebody breaks that trend, there'll be another trend. But I, I certainly understand what Harold is saying.
0: Yeah, and I think the key there is also to make advanced metrics more accessible too. You want the game to be accessible, but you want where it's headed to be more accessible as well. And I think that's that's still something where, you know, I read fan graphs and baseball Prospectus every day, but not all of those metrics are accessible to someone who's just going to watch 10 games a year, but you still want to be able to convey the message behind them.
1: And by the way, uh, things take time. I was in the booth doing World Series with Vince Scully for NBC in the mid to late 80s, and if I tried to put up on base percentage, which I did, people looked at me funny, people won't understand this. And 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 now it's it's standard to see on base percentage and slugging and even OPS and people even understand what OPS plus is. And it just takes time is what I'm saying. I, I'm saying it, it and it can't be all or nothing or a total uh One day, the TV looks like average home runs and RBIs, and the next day looks totally different. I just think these things take time.
0: I want to ask you about one of your books before I let you go. You've written many books. One of my favorites is the 25 Greatest Sports Conspiracy Theories of All Time. And it hits upon important stories like collusion and segregation and the Black Sox scandal. And it hits upon some frivolous stories as well. I mean, frivolous by comparison. But one of my favorites is the Frozen Envelope, Patrick Ewing to the Knicks theory. It's been 10 years since that book has come out, roughly. Has there been any advancements? Do we know for sure if there was a frozen envelope and that the that David Stern helped deliver Patrick Ewing to the Knicks?
1: No, but everything was in place. There was every reason Even for a conspiracy to, to happen. You really need a good motive. And the, the NBA really had a good incentive to have a good team in New York. And Ewing was so obviously the number one player in that year's draft. And there was just seven envelopes, you know, in a, in a in a, in a cylinder where you reach in and grab it. And if you wanted to grab one particular one, it would not have been unheard of. And there were theories and everything worked out perfect for the NBA. And it's, it's, it's one of those great, you know, I, when I say I love talking sports and arguing sports and, and imagining these things, but yes, the, that theory has never really gone away. And the Knicks never really won a, a championship, although they had a great player on their hands in Patrick Ewing.
0: What's your favorite sports conspiracy theory of all time?
1: My favorite sports conspiracy theory, of, uh, you know, it, it's not a, a favorite because it's not a good time in history. But there was a time in this country's history when even after uh, the game was integrated, teams kept their rosters, you, you know, on the NBA to African-American players. They had to be great players or only a couple of, of, of black players per team. And baseball certainly had that. And and it, it's not a particularly proud uh, chapter in, in our history. Uh, Nations' history and our sports history, but it was a conspiracy. There was definitely an un, unsaid agreement uh, that they weren't going to field teams even after in, uh, integration.
0: I'm curious, as someone who's made their life about numbers and baseball research and research and other sports, one of the things that's extremely difficult with baseball research, and I'm someone that's done a lot of Hall of Fame work and Hall of Fame analysis, is that numbers are so grotesquely inflated in the 1920s, and the 1930s, before the league was integrated, before many advancements have hit baseball and all sports, really. How do you account for those numbers, and how do you adjust for modern players? That's
1: a great question. And I always want to know what their contemporaries thought of those players. And that's why the accolades, how many times they were voted MVP, how many times they were they won a Cy Young award. Not, Cy Young obviously wasn't there in the 20s and 30s or 40s, but what the uh, the contemporary writers with contemporary players thought about these players. You know, in today's game, all-star teams are made up of, what, 33, 34 players, and then with replacements and who can't play. In the old days, there was a team of 25. So there's how many more All-Stars per year. So a five-time or a six-time or seven-time All-Star today doesn't mean as much as a five- or six- or seven-time All-Star back then. But when people ask me, how could I rate Barry Bonds as the number one player of all time, take steroids out of the equation, and history will be kind to Bonds. We're already seeing history being kind to steroid users. But in Babe Ruth's time... He didn't face the best competition. He didn't face the top Asians. He didn't face the top Hispanics. He didn't face the top African-Americans. He faced competition that was not as good. Not his fault, but it just was not the same competition. And you got to you got to put everything in perspective. You have to have everything at your disposal and realize certain things are not apples to apples. So inflated numbers in certain eras just do not equate, you know?
0: I agree. And I think one of the things that makes baseball special is its connection to the past. But one of the problems baseball has is how it clings to the past as well. You look at the consensus all-time starting nine, it still has Ruth, Walter Johnson, Lou Gehrig, Hannes Wagner, Rogers Hornsby on it. Are we really supposed to believe that five guys who were born in the 1800s or early 1900s are still the best players ever? It doesn't make any sense. And I know statistically they still are, but it's hard to, I think it's hard for baseball to promote itself when it still clings to the past that much.
1: You're talking to a guy who wrote books, you know, with Barry Bonds, ranked the number one player of all time, or in golf, Tiger Woods. I wrote that about 10 years ago as well, 12 years ago. And, and taking a shot to Tiger Woods would be number one, so i don 't totally uh, bury my head in the sand and 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 in the past i 'm not a get off your lawn guy. I do want to say though that for modern fans and young fans to learn about the great players of the past only enhances the game it only enhances uh the experience when you you know i wanted when, uh to take my kids to see Ricky Henderson, even at the end of his career in his 40s when he was in the Independent League, Newark Bears, because I want you to see, guys, what many consider the greatest leadoff man in the history of the game. You know, I, I always, I, I think, I wouldn't say I wrapped myself in the past or that baseball is, is is bad because of that. I think that there's a healthy respect. And if you if you see Ricky Henderson play, and then you can tell your kids you saw Ricky Henderson play while you're watching whoever it is in your generation or in your future generation I think that that's also what connects baseball and connects generations and connects uh, fathers with kids or, or fans with, with younger fans and that's part of the appeal of baseball
0: You've been listening to Elliot Calb. Elliot is the Senior Editorial Director for MLB Network. He's the author of several books as well. You can give him a follow on Twitter at MrStats50 Elliot, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.